0: First word in chapter 4 and verse 1, finally, that's sometimes translated, the Greek word can sometimes be translated and now. And really, it's a transition. Paul's shifting from narrative to exhortation. So he's going from giving us the backstory in the first three chapters, he's giving us the backstory of the Thessalonian church. He's telling us how they were converted, how he ministered to them. But now, with this word finally, he's going to instruction. He's going to instruct them on how to live in light of the gospel, how to live in light of the new faith that they've received. These instructions aren't just for the Thessalonians. We need to point that out. These instructions are for us. We still struggle here in Texarkana, in this building, we still struggle with the same sins that these Thessalonians struggled with 2,000 years ago. And this scripture, as all scripture is, is just as relevant for us today as it was for them. We need to always remember that. In chapter 4, Paul's going to be dealing with some big topics. All right, Sexual immorality, how we view our daily work. Um, These things are big. And we could spend months and months talking about them. I promise I won't do that. I'm trying to keep it condensed as much as we can. But we might need to come back and hit this later on uh, and, and look at some of these topics later on. But we're just going to talk about Uh, what Paul's talking about here in the context of this scripture. So let's take a look at verse 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So here in verse 1, we see that Paul's beginning to exhort them. He's beginning to instruct them He's using these words which are translated ask and urge. Now, these were forceful words. In the Greek, they were often used in military commands. So what he's pointing to, he's, not, he's saying that these things aren't optional. It's not multiple choice. I'm sure maybe you've heard the, the comment that the Ten Commandments aren't multiple choice. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying these are commands. These are instructions. These aren't optional things. Paul also points out here that these instructions are given with the authority of the Lord Jesus. His teaching has the authority of Christ behind it. These aren't Paul's commands, they're Christ's commands. The function of these instructions we see here in verse verse 1 is that we live in order to please God. What does that mean? I think that's something we really need to spend a little bit of time on because that can be a difficult thing for us to think about. I think it's really easy for us to confuse pleasing God with appeasing God. Okay, Appeasing God would say that we can do enough good works to earn favor in God's eyes. Paul's not saying this at all. Paul understood that we were sinners under the wrath of a perfect and holy God and that that perfect and holy God can't accept, can accept our sin. He would cease to be perfect and holy if he did. Paul understood that and he expressed in his letter to the Romans that we all fall short of the glory of God, but that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we're hopeless apart from the work of Christ, and Paul knows that. He knows that no amount of good works can earn our salvation. So Paul's not pointing to appeasement here when he talks about pleasing God. What he is saying is that the proper response to God's grace and mercy, when we think about what God's done for us through Christ, the proper response is going to be thankfulness. It's going to be love. It's going to be gratitude. And when you truly love someone, when you truly are thankful for what they've done for you, you're going to want to please them. You're going to want to serve them. And Paul is urging us to serve our Master not out of drudgery but out of gratitude. So what does our culture say about pleasing God? Basically, our culture says the opposite. Our culture in America and much of the West and really throughout the world says, please yourself. It says the chief aim in life is is to seek comfort. It's to seek happiness. It's to seek pleasure. It beckons us to come and play and enjoy this life at all costs, no matter what. But what Paul is pointing to in verse 1 and 2 is really a different way of life. It's a countercultural way of life. Christianity is a countercultural religion. We don't always think of it that way, especially in the Bible Belt, but we should be going against the culture. He's telling us that we seek to please God through service, and that should be the trajectory of our lives. The Great Confession says, "...the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever." And that doesn't mean that we're forbidden from enjoying the good things in this life. There's a lot of things in this life that I, that I enjoy and love, and, but these can't be the aim of my life. Get, we have to see them in the proper context, which they're gifts from a gracious God. So the pleasures of this world are not our chief aim. That's not what we're shooting for. What we're shooting for is God. So in verse 1, Paul points out that pleasing God also is not a destination that we're going to arrive at in this life. This is something that we're going to do more and more as we grow in faith through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So in verse 1 and 2, Paul's pointing out that we strive to please God. He's pointing out that this should be the trajectory of our lives. This is what we're living our lives for. In verse 3 through 8, he points uh, to one way in which we can do that. So let's take a look there. Starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So in verse 3, Paul starts out by pointing that it is the will of God that as believers we become sanctified and holy. What he's saying, it is the will of God that we be separated from sin, that we be set apart from sin, that our life isn't characterized by sin. He goes on to say that we begin to do this, one way in which we can do this is by abstaining from sexual immorality. How many families do you know have been ruined by this sin? How many children have been orphaned or abandoned? How many ministries in the church have been destroyed? I mean, it's a mind-boggling thing. I'm sure many of you in here have dealt with this in your life. I know it's an extremely difficult thing to deal with, but it's a destructive thing sin, a very destructive sin. In First Peter, Satan is described as a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. And he so often uses this type of sin to devour us. He uses it all the time, especially with men, and especially with leaders in the church. The enemy is subtle. This sin is a very subtle sin. We usually don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to have an affair. It usually begins with a slow drift. You know, it's a drift into a little bit of lust in our minds. It leads to some flirtation, and then eventually it creeps into pornography, and then before you know it, it creeps into action. I think we also have to say that Christ isn't simply concerned with our actions in this matter, or any matter. He's concerned with our heart, and he knows that this sin ultimately comes from our heart, and that's why on the Sermon on the Mount, he compares looking with lustful intent with adultery. He puts them on an even scale. You know, we, in our culture, if you listen to the radio or just being around people, we hear people all the time express shock at how bad our world has gotten in this, in this matter. And it really has gotten bad. It's, I mean, it's, it's depraved and it's getting worse. But I think we need to realize that this isn't a new thing. It's not a modern thing. This has been going on since the fall. And in the Greco-Roman world where the Thessalonians lived, it was really depraved. In fact, it would probably make our culture look pretty tame. Uh, At this time, temple prostitution was very common. It was accepted. It was encouraged, as Bruce said earlier. And it wasn't uncommon for a man in Thessalonica to have four different partners. He would have a mistress who would be considered his intellectual equal, maybe someone he worked with on the same uh, educational level. Uh, He would usually have a female slave or a concubine that was available to him at all times. Most men routinely visited prostitutes. And lastly, he would have his wife. And his wife was kind of the one who was responsible for managing the household. She was responsible for bearing his legitimate children. Uh, But she just really, she knew all this was going on and she just had to accept it. Which brings the point that sexual sin is always, always, always really bad for women. They get objectified, they get trampled on, and uh, it was the case then and it's really the case now. All of these things would have been out in the open in this culture. This wasn't a hush-hush type of thing. It was a very normal aspect of everyday life. These men were upstanding individuals in society. They weren't looked down upon because of this. And many of the Thessalonians who would have been converted would have been living this type of lifestyle when they were converted. So it's obvious from this scripture that Timothy reports back to Paul that many of them are struggling in this matter. These are believers, but they're struggling with this sin. Okay, And so that's why Paul's addressing it. That's why it's the first thing he's addressing. I think before we go any further, we really need to define what Paul means by sexual immorality. He uses the Greek word porneia. And this word is seen quite a bit throughout the New Testament. And in this context, it refers to any sexual relationship outside of the heterosexual marriage relationship. He uses the word abstain, and that word means to cut off. He's not talking about moderation. He's not saying that this is okay every once in a while or this type of relationship, you know, you can hang on to one here or there. He's saying, do not participate in any activity outside of marriage. Cut yourself off from it. You know, when I was studying this, I I read a commentary by John Stott, and he points out that this scripture, as well as many scriptures in the New Testament, tell us that there are two fundamental guiding principles about sexual behavior. One is that sex has a God-given context, and the other is that sex has a God-given style. And I just want to take a few, t- a few minutes to go through those because I think it's important that we see this. First, sex has a God-given context. Now, growing up in the South, in the Bible Belt, this isn't something that we talked about. You know, I'm sure m- many of you uh, experienced this growing up if you grew up in the church. You, def- you might have talked about it at deer camp or you know in the locker room or whatever, but you didn't talk about it at church. Okay? And as a result, we learned about this from the media and and other sources. And culture tells us simply to pursue what feels good. It says that casual relationships are no big deal, friends with benefits is okay, and that there's really no intimacy. You don't have to have any emotional intimacy for physical intimacy. That's what the world would tell us. And we know, if you've ever been involved in this, you know that that's not true, that, that, people are hurt, lives are ruined because of this attitude. But here's the truth that Scripture reveals, okay? And Scripture says this. Scripture says that sex is good, all right? It's not anything that we have to be hush-hush about. It's not something that Scripture is shy about. I mean, if you read the Song of Solomon, you're probably going to blush and, you know, be like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. But, But Scripture says that it is a gift, it's to be enjoyed, it's from a good creator, but it has to be enjoyed in the proper context. And God has designed a proper context for that, and that's heterosexual marriage. So in summary, it's good, it's to be enjoyed, but there's a context, and that's marriage, and that's cut and dry, okay? So the second thing that John Stott points out is that Sex has a God-given style, and that style is honor and holiness. And I think we just need to talk about this just a little bit for those in here who aren't married, okay? Not everyone will be called to marriage. Not every believer will be called to marriage, and Paul actually says that there's a lot of benefits to singleness, okay? So that's a gift. But many of us are called to marriage and will be called to marriage. If you're not married, just listen real quick please don't marry out of lust, okay? Don't marry out of infatuation because that's why we have so many problems in marriages today. The Bible calls us to seek a spouse with whom we are evenly yoked, okay? And that would be someone, if you're a believer, that shares a common faith in Jesus Christ. Not someone who just confesses it with their mouth, someone who's living it, okay? And it has to be someone that you respect, Someone that you respect intellectually, someone you respect emotionally, someone that you can honor. We marry for intimacy. We marry to selflessly give ourselves to another person. That does include the physical, but it includes a whole lot more than that. So much of this type of immorality really is just cheating. And men are really bad about this. People want to give their bodies without giving their selfless love. And this happens outside of marriage all the time, but it also can happen within marriage as well, and we need to be aware of this. Marriage just isn't a license for legalized lust. It's not about taking advantage of our spouse, and men struggle with this. I mean, I struggle with this. We want the physical, but we don't want the intimacy. Jeffrey Black, he's a Christian counselor. He deals with these issues often. He's seen a lot of uh, marriages... Uh, that are in bad shape because of this, and he says this. He says, The desire for sex in a relationship that otherwise lacks intimacy is one of the most common complaints in marriage. A husband comes looking for affection while the wife complains that he never talks, he doesn't listen, and he spends his down time in front of the TV. But he always seems to come alive when we go to bed, she quotes. She notes, Sometimes he, she will consent to sex, but then gives in to resentment. If this husband thinks that snuggling in bed will draw his wife close to him, he's making a critical mistake. It may impact him positively, but it won't produce the communion that his wife so longs for and that God prescribes for marriage. God always says that sexuality is supposed to be an expression of a communion that already exists. So, this self centered outlook can ruin a marriage. And it's also probably why we have such a problem with pornography in the church today. It's not just people outside the church. There's a massive percentage when they do these studies, something like 40-50% of men in evangelical churches are uh, viewing this. But it's a totally selfish thing. It's just you and a computer screen. There's no intimacy required. It's cheating. And as Paul points out in verse 4 and 5, it's not controlling yourself and holiness and honor. It is simply lusting as the pagans do. This type of behavior is not for us. Christ called us to be selfless servants in all aspects of our lives. That includes the bedroom, and that means we need to be available to each other in marriage, both physically and emotionally. Marriage isn't just about our own happiness. It's not like the Disney fairy tale. It's, it's about learning to serve another person It's about learning to glorify God through that service, through that relationship with our spouse. But here's the thing. I think that if we learn to serve each other that way, even if it's half the time, we're going to have an amazing marriage. You're going to have happiness. You're going to have joy, and you're going to have contentment. It's good. So lastly, when Paul's talking about this uh, subject in verse 6 and 8, he warns us about disregarding this instruction to flee this type of immorality. Paul points out that the Lord is the avenger in all these things, and to disregard this instruction is not disregarding man's instruction, but God's command. So that's a warning for us that we have to heed. One author says this about the, those verses. He says, For the Lord himself sees the intimacies of the bedroom. He hates every kind of human exploitation, including what is sometimes called exploitation." There may be no redress for such behavior in a human law court, but there will be at the bar of God. And he himself will avenge it because he did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So if you're a believer and you're struggling with these issues, scripture calls on you to flee from it. Do everything in your power to resist it. Be practical about it. If it's a relationship outside of your marriage, cut it off. If it's your computer, block the bad sites. If it's Direct TV, block the bad stuff. You know, Billy Graham, when he traveled to a hotel room, and he traveled all the time, he would have his staff or, or he would go to the front desk and have all the bad channels blocked, okay? And he did that because, not out of, like, legalism, I think he did that because he was a man, and he was a sinful man, and he knew that, and he didn't need that temptation there. He also never traveled with another female alone other than his wife but here's the thing other than practical things this is what we need the most we need God's word continually at work in our lives we need the Holy Spirit at work in our lives we also need people who will walk with us who will pray with us who will pray for us who will be examples to us and there's many in that church who can be that for you if you're struggling so don't suffer alone Jeffrey Black, the counselor, again, sums it up really well when he talks about dealing with people who are caught up in this pattern of immorality. He says this. He says, their desire is for a quick solution. But what we need is God's sanctifying word continually at work in our lives. And I think this applies to all sin in our lives. But when God's word has not been steadily at work in people, they will discover in a crisis that they're not equipped to deal with their sin. They hope to find a solution that bypasses that ongoing work of the Spirit through the Word. In essence, they say, Quick, I need a little bit of God. I'm really in trouble here. As a friend, as a disciple, or counselor, you can't give people something that God slowly perfects day by day. However, you can offer them biblical guidance. You can offer them your prayers. You can offer support as a member of the body of Christ. But what they really need is the wisdom of Christ that changes hearts, which comes when God applies the Word to their lives and and they respond in faith and obedience. So if you're trapped in this sin, or any sin, the answer is Christ. The answer for you is to respond in faith and obedience, to spend time in His Word daily, to let Him transform your life. Only He can pay for your sin. You can't pay for it. Only He can take the guilt and shame away. Let's move on to verse 9 here. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You know, last week I talked about how at the conclusion of chapter 3, Paul's praying this prayer to the Thessalonians that they increase in love for one another. And he's alluding to this as a part of their growing in holiness, a part of their sanctification. But here Paul points out that they're already doing this. They're doing some things really well and they're loving each other and they're loving those outside the church throughout Macedonia. The Greek word that Paul uses for love here is Philadelphia. You know, like the city, the Phillies, all that good stuff, the city of brotherly love. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that we are to love each other as a family loves each other. When we place our faith in Christ, we become the adopted sons and daughters of the king of the universe. So that makes us brothers and sisters. And if you've ever been a part of a loving church, you know what that bond is. We have that bond here in Christ Community Church. I see that. It's a different bond. It's an eternal bond. It's a bond bound together through Christ. And it's an encouraging thing to be a part of that. So where does that love come from? Paul points out in verse 9 that we are taught that love from God Himself. So how does God teach us that love? I think there's kind of three, three ways that I thought about, and there's probably more, but one of those ways is that we're taught His love through His commands, His commands revealed in Scripture. In Matthew 23, Christ says that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, God teaches us to love him through his example, through the example of Christ. Christ left his throne in heaven so that he could come to earth and so that he could be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserve so that we can be reconciled to him. And this is a perfect picture of, Of selfless love. And then third, I think God teaches us his love through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Paul is really alluding to here. The Thessalonians, when they became Christians, they received the Holy Spirit. When we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. And he's our guide. He's our counselor. He guides us to love each other. He shows us how to do that. In verse 11 and 12, Paul gives us an example of what loving each other looks like through our daily work of all things. And these verses are great because when I think about the way I should live my life, and I often question that, what should my life look like? If someone asks me what my life should look like as a believer, I think these are two really good verses to point to. And they say this, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul's calling us to a quiet life of service here, a life characterized by hard work. That should be our witness. It's simple. It's obvious that some in the Thessalonian church had become idle. Many had uh, falsely believed they they had a kind of misconception about end times theology and they thought that christ was coming immediately and so many of them gave up working they said christ is coming you know take this job and shove it i'm done and then some of them were probably just lazy and they were they were in this group of of new believers there were many there were wealthy and poor and many of the wealthy were were uh, giving charity to the poor and the poor were taking advantage of it they were quitting their jobs Paul's saying that they needed to get busy. They needed to get to work. Because not being busy, they were just sitting around and they were becoming busybodies, right? They were meddling. They were getting up in everybody's business. They were worried about what everybody else was doing, not in a loving way, but they were just sitting around and causing trouble. Paul says you can't do that if you're working hard. You can't do that if your hands are busy. He gives them the, them the example that he taught them that when he was there he worked day and night so that he could support himself so that they didn't need to support him. That that's one way he loved them. Paul worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. Jesus worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. You know, in the Greco-Roman society at this time, working with your hands was considered a lowly thing, and many wouldn't take crafts like that. They would rather not work. They'd rather be on. They did have some sort of government assistance at the time, they would rather do that than take a job that was beneath them. But Paul's saying that's not right. Christianity celebrates an honest living. It celebrates hard work. It celebrates providing for your family and being able to provide for others. And at the same time, we do understand that there are people who cannot earn a living. Maybe they've been physically hurt. Maybe they uh, have, have mental issues. Maybe the main breadwinner in the family Has died, maybe they're working, but they just can't make their the ends meet. We are to help those people. We are to be generous. We are to be charitable. That's one reason we work so that we can give to others. But Paul is saying that as a believer, we are not to take advantage of charity. That's a horrible witness to the outside world. So how do we view work? I think that we need to look at this. I think there's this Sometimes, you know, I've, I've worked in a lot of different places in the military and other things like that, uh, road construction and all these things. And so, you know, sometimes you get somebody and they're really vocal about their faith, but they are a horrible employee. And that is a huge turnoff to me. It always has been just a, man, it's a bad witness. I think we are called to be excellent at our work. I think we work, Scripture calls us to work as if we're working for Christ. And that even means if you have a really bad, evil boss, you still have to work hard for him. Okay, that means when the boss is out of town, when he's on vacation, you don't sit on the computer and play solitaire and shop on eBay and go home early. It means that you still work hard when nobody is watching. It means integrity. It means honesty. It means doing the right thing. As Christians, we need to be a witness in all aspects of our life. That includes work. We should stand out. When people look at us, they should say, man, that guy never stirs up trouble. He doesn't participate in workplace gossip. He or she doesn't slack off. They strive for excellence. They're a great employee. I don't know what I would do without them. That's how we should be seen. I believe this is the calling of our of our lives no matter if we think we're in the worst job we could ever be in, you know, or if we're in the job that we know that God's called us to, whatever it is, we strive for excellence. But I think one thing we really have to note here, and this is very, very important because it's, it's so easy to get caught up in, especially for men in America, and that's that our job cannot become our identity. It can't be our idol. You know, what's the first thing that somebody asks you when you meet them for the first time other than what your name is? It's what do you do, right? And so it's so easy for that to become our identity. But that can't be the end that we're striving for. I think that means a lot of things. I think that means that when we don't get that promotion that we deserve, that means that we don't sink down into this depression and our lives aren't ruined. I think that if our business fails, despite our best efforts, that doesn't mean we consider ourselves a failure, We don't neglect our families because of our jobs. We don't neglect our faith because of our jobs. We're free to change our job if it's calling us to do unethical things, if it's calling us to work too many hours, if it's calling us to neglect our families. We're free to change jobs. Our hope is in Christ. It's not in work. And when we see work in the proper context, when we place it in the proper context of our lives, I think that's going to make us better employees, Better bosses, better husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. There's a really good example of what the way we should look at work, and it's in the movie Chariots of Fire. Have any of you guys seen that movie? It's an old school movie from the 80s, not too old school. You know, it's got the good soundtrack uh, that people always play when they're running, they're running on the beach. But it's based on the true story of Eric Liddell. Now, Eric Liddell was a Scottish sprinter. He was an Olympian. He was kind of known as the greatest Scottish athlete. If you go to Scotland, they still know this guy and think he's a great guy. And uh, he has an amazing story. He was a very strong Christian. He was well-known because he refused to run on Sundays. And his refusal to run on Sundays mean he, mean, meant that he could not run in his best event, which I think was the 110 or the 100, whatever it was then. But that was his best event. But the qualifying for the Olympics was on Sunday, and he refused to do it. Even though all the Scottish people, he was a very famous guy, and all the Scottish people were saying, please do it for national pride. Please do it. God will understand, but he refused to do it. He held strong. Later in life, after the Olympics, he would travel to China as a missionary. While he was in China, World War II broke out, and he, he had a wife and children and he sent them back to England because he knew things were about to get bad. But he refused to leave the people he was ministering to. They were eventually captured and put in a prison camp, and he died of an illness there, really as a martyr uh, for the faith. He was an amazing man, but he was also really fast, too. In the movie, there's, a, there's another character. Uh, we see a contrast between he and a guy named Harold Abrahams. Now, Harold Abrahams really wasn't a believer, in he saw work differently. He saw running differently. Eric Liddell, there's a scene in the movie where his sister is worried about him because she knows that he's been called to be a missionary, and Eric knows this too, but she's worried about that he's focused too much on running. And so she's kind of calling him out, and he's saying that, look, I'm going to go to the mission field. I know that that's what God has called me to, but first I'm going to run in the Olympics. And he has this quote. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Now we see the contrast with Harold Abrahams. He sees life differently. In the movie, while he's preparing for the race, he's kind of getting ready to go out there, and he says this. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide, and I have ten lonely seconds to justify my own existence. Do you see the contrast there? Abrahams is working to justify his existence. He's working to prove his worthiness. He's running out of madness. And at the end of the movie, it's showing their faces as they're running the race. Abrahams is running out of despair. He has this great look of despair on his face. He has a great fear of failure. But Eric Liddell, as he's running... He's running for the pleasure of God. And when he runs, you see a look of freedom on his face, a look of joy. He's relaxed. He's smooth. And the movie does a great job of showing this contrast. So my whole point in that is that we need to see something. We need to see that whether it is our work, whether it's our marriage, whether it's anything we do in this life, anything we do in this world, the object of our pleasure is God. We seek to please him in all things. And at the same time, we know that we're incapable of appeasing him through our works. But when we turn from our sin and we place our faith in Christ, we can rest. We can rest in his righteousness and we can then run the race of this life freely. We can run freely for his pleasure. We can strive out of thankfulness and gratitude, not some uh, perfection. Not, not trying to prove our worthiness in this world. We are only made perfect in Christ. We rest in Him. And through that rest, we can be freed from all our idols. We can be freed from the, our work as our idol. We can be freed from sexual immorality as our idol and all the other things that clutter our lives. God is who we strive to please. Christ is who we put our rest in. And he is who we serve. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for gathering us here together this morning. We just thank you that we are not perfect, but that you gave us a perfect Savior. That we can rest in him and that we can strive freely to seek your pleasure. That we know that our righteousness is in him, it's not in our works. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for this group. In your name we pray, amen.